0: Consumers are now touching software thousands of times a day. And so the demands around software and the quality of the user experience just goes through the roof. And that creates this land rush of demand for design talent.
1: Everyone. Thanks for tuning into Notes of Design to help support our mission spread knowledge. We have a very special guest on today's episode. Let's welcome Bob Baxley, who is a design executive, advisor, mentor, and advocate who has built and managed UX team at some of Silicon Valley's most respected companies. With a career spanning three decades, Bob's work at Apple, Pinterest, Yahoo has touched hundreds of millions of users around the world. Currently, Bob serves as a senior vice president of design at ThoughtSpot, a business intelligence and data analytics platform he's an advisor to project invent Bob is committed to recruiting and inspiring the next generation of designers by mentoring individuals and advising organizations that are working to improve the profession and practice of digital product design in this episode Bob had shared great insights on user interface design we had spoke on what's the history of Silicon Valley and how does UI design developed in Silicon Valley later that we spoke on what are the different frameworks for data enabled design and why having good taste is better than having good data post that we had discussed on why few companies can only design at the level of apple and what were the lessons of bob from working at apple during the meteoric race of iphones post that we had spoke on how could individual contributors can grow in their career and do executive level presentation as designers later that we had concluded the show by bob's opinion on future of design and what does he look for in a designer's portfolio Hope you guys enjoy this episode and on every Friday, we release new episodes with different creative leaders from around the world to help you better understand different concepts related to design. So don't forget to tune in to Notes of Design every Friday. With that being said, happy designing everyone. Hi, Bob.
0: Welcome to Nodes of Design. It's a pleasure hosting you today on our show. Hey, Tej. Thanks for having me. It's awesome to be here. Happy Saturday morning to you. Friday night for me. That's great, Bob. So how was your day so far? Too early to tell. No, I'm just kidding. It was was an awesome day. Started off with a a nice two-hour executive call. Uh, awesome collaboration session with one of my designers talking about this really interesting idea we're doing for some user research. Yeah. Now we're just watching a little basketball and settling into our weekend.
1: That's really wonderful, Bob. So if you could give a brief about yourself to our audience out there.
0: Sure. So my name is Bob Baxley. Uh, I've been a designer in Silicon Valley uh, for a little over 30 years now. Started my career working for a subsidiary of Apple called Claris, where I worked on the first couple of versions of Claris Works. Over the course of my 30 some odd years, I uh, led design teams at Yahoo, where I helped lead the creation and initial design of uh, Yahoo Answers. Then I moved to Apple, where for six years, I led the team that worked on the Apple online store. Spent a couple of years working in the Apple retail corporate side, uh, working on the software that's used inside the stores. Then I went to Pinterest for about a year and a half and managed product design there. Took a few years off, which we can talk about if you'd like. Uh, And then after about a three-year break, I joined a company called ThoughtSpot about two and a half years ago. ThoughtSpot's business intelligence data analytics company was founded by Amit Singh and Amit Prakash. Um, We have offices in Bangalore and Hyderabad, plus uh, a big presence here in Silicon Valley, and then sales offices around the world. Uh, Also, most recently, started a a development center in Romania as well. Yeah, and then I, I do a lot of podcasting. I speak a lot about design education, the need for more people to come into design. Um and uh, have have a podcast of my own that's more about having how to lead a happy life.
1: That's really wonderful, Bob. Thank you so much for sh- sharing with us. So, what was your journey into design, and how
0: did you start? And what are your tips to the beginners on how to start? Yeah, so my journey started when I was about um maybe thirteen, and I was in. 7th grade and uh you know just for a little context I was born in 1963 I'm almost 60 years old now not quite but getting there and when I was 13 was right at the beginning of the personal computing revolution and I happened to go to a school that bought a Wang computer back in the day 4K 4 kilobytes of memory and a cassette tape if you could even imagine what that is a cassette tape for storing programs and it turns out I just completely absolutely fell in love with computing. I learned how to program in BASIC, which is a language that looks quite a bit like Python. And something about computing and programming just completely, you know, stuck with my brain. Strangely enough, my parents at the time, you know, computer science was still kind of a new thing. So they didn't really encourage me so much to go into programming, but that nut kind of stayed out there for me. I was able to get a Macintosh at the end of my senior year in college. I actually ended up studying history In radio, television, film, so largely film production. Two skills, so the liberal arts education from history plus the film production piece, two skills that actually ended up being really useful for what I do today. Um, Long story short, I started a graphic design studio doing desktop publishing using really, really early versions of Illustrator and PageMaker, if you remember that. Um, Did that for a little while and then eventually decided I wanted to uh, get a regular tech job. Literally sent 107 resumes in the mail to uh, all the companies that advertised in a particular issue of Macworld magazine that turned into ultimately turned into a UI design job for Claris that moved me from Dallas Texas out to San Francisco California and I started as a designer in 1990 Labor Day of 1990 working in uh, on Macintosh software that ran on a tiny little screen and it was all in black and white and uh, the original version of Claris works was mostly designed in MacPaint and MacDraw and then to sort of completely bring the circle around Um, About 28 years later, I found myself at Pinterest and I had the honor and privilege to hire Susan Care uh, and bring her onto the team. And Susan, of course, had been part of the original 20 person team that worked on the Mac. She had created all the original icons for the Mac back in the day. Um, so this machine, you know, the Macintosh that had become such a centerpiece of my life and really kind of put me in on a completely different career trajectory, you know, eventually got to work closely and and now have a long-term friendship with somebody who was on that team and, and core to that that computer. Yeah. So I would say, you know, when you look at my trajectory, some of the things that I think people should hold on to is one, you never know where your education, how it's going to play into what you're eventually going to do. And you, there's not a straight line from, you know, design is not something you come at with a straight line. Um, It it, design is populated by a bunch of people with original and different mindsets and backgrounds. And that's actually what makes it uh, as innovative as it is. And what makes it as much fun to work in as it is. That's kind of one of the takeaways. The other takeaway is, I did put 107 resumes into the into the mail and I heard back from two companies. So, you know, in sort of a direct mail response rate, I got a 2% response rate. And one of those companies wasn't even all that serious about talking to me. So I actually got about a 1% <laughs> response rate. So I would encourage people to kind of keep that in mind. And today it's actually a lot easier to apply for jobs. So it's likely your response rate's not even going to be 1%, but it is a bit of a numbers game. So when I talk to younger designers who are trying to break into the field, Um, The thing they always tell them is just, you know, don't, don't get discouraged, keep going. It could take you a while to find a job. In the meantime, do everything you can to amass as much experience as you can. I often encourage people at the early parts of their careers to try to find friends who have who have small startup if you can find uh, small venture capital funds who invest in early stage companies try to get connected to those work for free if you have to i know that's that can be difficult but if you can just try to amass as many uh different experiences as you can probably the marquee experience for me was actually after i left claris i was a consultant for about six years just on my own freelancing which was easy to do at that point in time um and in the course of that six years i worked with something i can't remember the exact numbers it was like 45 different companies on like eight some odd different projects you know i worked on tv-based applications i worked on kiosks i worked on desktop applications on windows and on mac Uh, uh, web-based stuff desktop stuff just like a whole gamut of different types of software. And I think that was actually sort of one of my marquee learning moments because you're working in all these different mediums and it forces you to understand how humans interact with with software, right? So it teaches you user interface design independent of a particular medium. And I sort of compare it to like understanding linguistics versus understanding a single language. So it, you could be really good at designing on the web, but if you're not also designing for kiosks and mobile and desktop software, you kind of only know the language of the web. And so early in your career, if you can skip around all these different interactive mediums, and there's a lot of them, there's games, there's like you know, there's, there's hardware devices like gas station pumps and point of sale systems. All, now today, there's all sorts of kiosks, ATM kiosks, there's uh, airline check-in kiosk. There's, a, there's a, like software is everywhere now. And so there's all these different ways to design software. And the more different places that you can design software for, the more you're going to fundamentally understand how humans interact with computers. And that's going to make you a much better designer in whatever medium you're working in.
1: Thank you so much, Bob. So you've been seeing the history of Silicon Valley. So if you could share with us, what was the history of design in Silicon Valley and how does the UI design develop?
0: Yeah, so obviously the history of Silicon Valley is a, long, a very, very long story that, that actually kind of begins in the 1950s, largely the 1950s. It obviously starts with Hewlett Packard in the 1920s. It's tied very closely to the advent of Stanford University and some key people that went through Stanford, including folks like uh, Mr. Like Terman. Uh, then Shockley comes out at some point, he formed Shockley Labs. Shockley's Labs is where they figure out how to put silicon into transistors, and that kind of puts the silicon into Silicon Valley. So there's all that kind of hardware history of Silicon Valley, which is fascinating, and I encourage you to go read. The piece when we start talking about software, probably the key thing you have to look at is... There's this really interesting moment in the late 1960s when the counterculture revolution was happening in San Francisco and Stanford being just about 40 miles south of San Francisco. All that stuff was happening down around Palo Alto and and, and on the peninsula in Silicon Valley as well. And so, you know, the kind of the key question is, why is it that in the late 60s, the idea of personal computing took hold in Silicon Valley, when in fact, all the major tech companies in the United States were on the East Coast? And this book that I read called "From uh, From Counterculture to Cyber From Sorry From Counterculture to Cyberculture" is the title of the book. Um, in that book, the author talks about how it was only on the West Coast where a hand, very small group of people, mostly working at Xerox. Palo Alto Research Center, but a few other folks around that, like Stuart Brand and some other people, they had this idea that personal computing was a new sort of medium, that software was a medium on par with movies, music, and books. And like that idea is an incredibly powerful one. And it because it positions software not as a, a tool, but as a, you know, a communicative communications medium. And it's not that communication mediums like film, they also have industrial uses um so it's it's they're you know it's not it's not saying software is art it's just saying that it is a communication medium on par with movies music and books just a super powerful idea and so hold on to that idea for a second. Then you talk more about design in, in Silicon Valley. So obviously, as soon as you get anything that looks like a graphical user interface, which happens with the Mac and a little bit before, you know, and then those ideas all sprung out of Xerox PARC by by and large, not completely, but by and large. If you really want to learn about the original ideas of what we think of as personal computing, look for an article called, As We May Think, by a gentleman named Vannevar Bush. It ran in the Atlantic Magazine in it's the early 1950s and that's sort of one of the earliest mentions of multimedia computing as we think about it today but those ideas really bear fruit later at xerox park with the work of alan Kay and some others and of course they created the computer that steve jobs and others saw early on that became the inspiration for the mac so we were designing software Through all that stuff, I was designing software for the Mac early in the days, but we didn't really get serious about designing software until the advent of the App Store. The iPhone comes out, people are using software more and more and more, but it's when the App Store comes out, which is in the summer, spring, summer of, of 2008, when if you were in the United States, that was the summer which Barack Obama was running for president, which most people here that are working today would remember that time, right? It's not that long ago. 2008 is not that long ago. And once the App Store comes out, then suddenly you have this rush of people creating new software and design really matters because consumers are now touching software thousands of times a day. And so the demands around software and the quality of the user experience just goes through the roof. And that creates this just land rush of uh, demand for design talent. And so, you know, people say, well, we were designing software before the app store. And it's true. We were also making movies before the advent of color and synchronized sound. So we have a whole era of movies that are silent pictures, you know, and there's a lot of great movies that are silent pictures and they were all very well made. We don't watch them very much today. (laughs) Like there is this bright line, the advent of those two technology breakthroughs color with the uh, with the the first color film being uh, the wizard of oz i think in 1932 synchronized sound with the jazz singer in 1928 if i recall it was those two technological breakthroughs combined that take you into the era of what we think of as modern movies and i would say it's the same thing with software that it's really with the app store that you move into what we think of today as design for software and you know so for me it's those, those two ideas that the demand for software is incredibly high and that you have to think about software as a medium Then for your, you know, for people who are breaking the field, I really try to encourage designers to think of themselves as creators in this medium and to actually be grateful because there can be no doubt that software is the most important medium going on in the world. There is no doubt that software is the most influential culture or cultural artifact being made anywhere in the world today. It completely dwarfs, dwarfs the impact of movies, music, or books our world is culturally shaped by software and those of us who design it are shaping that medium. And so I always, I think of myself as a creator in that medium and the designers listening will start to think of themselves as that way as well. You know, you get to be a designer in the same way that somebody else might get to be a movie director or an actor or a musician. Um, and once you start thinking about software in that way, you get much more excited about what you're doing, you know, and you get much more excited about the possibilities. And you also get a little bit more strong willed about it not only being about the business and about the numbers and about the utility. So that's a long answer to a pretty direct question, but I'll stop there for now.
1: Thank you so much, Bob. So what are the different frameworks for data-enabled design and why having a good taste is better than having good data?
0: Yeah, so this this goes to some talks that I've been given over the years, and it springs from an idea that I worked on when I wrote my book uh, called Making the Web Work. The book came out quite some time ago. It was written in 2001, been out for quite a while. But in the context of the book, I proposed this uh, this framework for how you, could, how you could deconstruct a user interface into these different layers. And I'm gonna go back to the movie-making analogy for a second, and I'll remind you that I studied film in college. So I go to the movie-making analogy a lot, and it turns out to be really relevant. So in movies, if you and I were to go to a movie, even though we didn't study film, we could have a pretty intelligent conversation of, where, of what we thought about the movie. And we could deconstruct it into the soundtrack and into the cinematography and the acting and the plot and the set decoration, and possibly the the special effects, maybe even the sound effects, potentially the editing. We would have that language as consumers. But if we were to sit down, even though we're both professional designers, if we were to sit down and I was to ask you what you thought about software, you actually wouldn't really know how to break it down that way, right? So you might sort of say, well, I like it or I don't like it. Mostly, you might be talking about the colors and the graphic design, but you wouldn't really be thinking at a much... We wouldn't have a way of quickly communicating a much deeper level than that. So in my book, and I talked about this quite a bit, you know, we can talk about the idea of software as being structure, behavior, and presentation, right? So how's how's a thing put together architecturally? How does it behave? What's the interaction design? And then at to the top, what's the presentation? What does it look like? What are the words that appear in the in the tech or in the in the software? And uh in my framework, I break that down into into a total of nine different layers. That's too much to walk you through right now, but just briefly, <laughs> it's the conceptual model, that then the structural model, which has to do with how you flow from one page to another, the organizational model, which is often talked of as traditional information architecture, that's the structure, the architecture of the, of the software. Then you move into the behavioral interaction layers that starts with um, viewing and uh, viewing and navigation behaviors, then editing and manipulation behaviors. And then finally, what I call user assistance, which is all the help and error states and all those sorts of things. And then after that, then you get in the presentation layer. So that starts out with uh, layout. And then we talk about uh, style, which is color and voice and tone. And then finally, uh, copy copy at the far outside edge, right? And the if when you look at that model, and if you could see it visually, it makes a little bit more sense. But the interesting thing about that model is that the stuff that you will hear about most in conversation are things on the outer edge of that model. What you'll mostly hear users talk about is they don't understand the words, they don't like the colors, the page layouts are a little goofy. You will never hear a user talk about the conceptual model. A user will never tell you, I don't fundamentally understand the metaphor of this software, right? But it turns out that the thing that they don't talk about is the very thing that is gonna cause them the most confusion. If you don't understand that Google Docs is essentially an electronic typewriter and that it's made for writing words, if you don't understand that concept, nothing in that software is gonna make sense to you ever. So the conceptual model is the key thing. At Pinterest, this was something we struggled with. What is Pinterest? What's the conceptual model of Pinterest? People mostly say it's a scrapbook, but that's that's not really it, you know? What is Facebook really? um facebook really is sort of it's a it's a feed it's sort of like a stock ticker that's kind of how you relate to it right so again the irony is we in design, we never really talk that much about these lower levels. We don't really consciously think about them, but they have the biggest impact on usability. And they also are the, the things that get most embedded into the code. So they're the things that are almost impossible to change down the road. So if you choose the wrong conceptual model, whether that's for the whole product or for particular feature, you can't ever really dig out of that unless you just completely reconceptualize the thing, which is very hard to do. So... Again, that's, the, you know, that's why you need some sort of framework because when you're evaluating software in a design critique, like what are the different elements, individual elements you're looking at, looking at. And as a designer, when I ask somebody, when I'm interviewing somebody and I ask them, you know, what's your favorite app? Often is not, they just tell me an app they use a lot, you know, so they'll kind of look at their phone and they go, I don't know, like maybe... You know, maybe Instagram because I use Instagram all the time. Well, that that doesn't tell me that you like Instagram. That just tells me that you use it for whatever reason. And then I'll say, well, what do you like about it? And frankly, a lot of designers can't really answer that question very well. Whereas if you were to ask me, what's my favorite app? I would say, well, I have a lot of apps that I find inspiration in different ways. For one of the examples I use all the time is the app Habitica, uh, which is the word habit plus I-C-A, Habitica, it's the land of Habitica. And what's Habitica is an app that's used to manage your to-do list and daily habits. And what's interesting about Habitica is it conceptually, it's a role playing game. At the beginning of the game, you choose a character like you're in Dungeons and Dragons. Do you want to be a healer? Do you want to be a mage? Do you want to be a warrior? I think are the three, three options. So you choose a kind of character. And then what you're trying to do is keep that character healthy and evolve them more points so that they can buy additional armor and stuff and they can participate in quests. And the way that you develop your character is by checking off your to do items. finishing your daily habits so what's fascinating about habitica is they didn't they didn't conceptually gamify a to-do manager they took a game and they made it about productivity right so conceptually they flipped the whole thing on its head um which is a really really interesting thing to do and again if we look at movies i can give you an example we've done the same thing in movies if i told you um i could make a space movie or I can make a cowboy movie. Okay, well, that's kind of interesting. How about I make a space? uh, How about I make a cowboy movie and I set it in space? And you might say, well, that's pretty interesting. And then I could say, yeah, that's actually Star Wars. That's what Star Wars is. Star Wars is a cowboy movie. Sat in space. And what's so amazing about Star Wars is they flipped the conceptual model and they played with your idea of what the genre of a movie is. And so this is just one example of how this framework could be useful. But you know, when somebody says, What app do you like? I can say, well, at the conceptual model level, I really like Habitica because they've completely flipped upside down and found a really innovative way into this conceptual model, into flipping the conceptual model around. So um And to your second part of your question, um, you're asking why is uh, why I think why is intuition or why is this framework better than data? Um, Data will never allow you to to invent in the way that I just described. Data will never point you to Habitica. No user alive is ever going to say, oh, I'd like to have a game where I advance my character by doing productivity. They'll never get there. Right? That's just never going to come out of data. That's something that you have to invent has to come out of your imagination. And to for something to come out of your imagination, you've got to really understand the medium. Um, and again, the, the framework that I offered is is one way to, to understand the medium in a much more nuanced way. Thank you so much, Bob. So
1: you have been, you worked with Apple for almost 60 years. And why only a few companies can design at the level of Apple? And what were the lessons from working at Apple during the meteoric rise of iPhones?
0: Yeah, so um, two different questions there. Why, is, why do other companies not design the way Apple does? Um, and then what was it like designing there? And what were the kind of the takeaways? The thing that's unique about Apple is Apple's um, existential survival depends on great design. So when Steve Jobs came back to Apple in 1996, he faced a company that was nearing bankruptcy and the competitive landscape, which, which is was a bunch of very inexpensive uh, PCs, Dell being one of the, Dell and Compact being two of the main competitors. And if you looked at that landscape, the only way to keep to start a company and keep them in business was a race to the bottom. Like you had to cut margins and cut margins and cut margins. And that just ends up in nobody making money. And so there's a business decision there. How else can we compete? And Steve decided, well, we could compete on design. We could make a strategic business decision that our competitive advantage is going to be design. And if we do that, if we offer a better design product, we can get higher margins because the design work will be worth it to people. They will value that. And that's the company he created. That's what Apple became. Not that it didn't value design before, but design became the thing at Apple after Steve came back in 96. That's how Apple was going to survive. They were going to compete on design. And that's how they get 34% margins on consumer electronics today when everybody else gets two or three percent margins on consumer electronics. And so at Apple, every employee, or at least when I was there, every employee, whether they worked at the reception desk, they worked in engineering, they worked in the in the employee cafeteria, everybody had their design on, design hat on all the time they were constantly asking, how can we do this better? And that's because the entire company's survival, its reason to exist was to ask the question, how can this be better? It was just design was baked into everything and the company couldn't afford to release something that was bad design because that would erode public trust, it erode public confidence, and suddenly you're not getting 34% margins anymore, right? So, So like hardly any other company does that. And to give you an example of how baked in design was to Apple, um, famously, at Cafe Max, which is the employee cafeteria there, there's a pizza. you know they have they have uh, custom made pizzas. And the guys making the pizzas uh, had an idea for a better pizza box. So instead of the box, the takeout box being square, they realized a circular box would be better because it would keep the pizza warm, hotter or warm longer. And so they figured out how to make a round pizza box and they did and they got it patented. And, you know, Apple at the employee cafeteria has the best pizza box you'll ever see anywhere. Right. And so, like, what is that? Well, that means that like everybody in the company is constantly asking, how could this be better? Um, Because the company depends on it. Um, And there's, again, there's just very few companies that have uh, engineered themselves into that kind of a situation. Uh, I might say Leica is one example. Lego might be another example. Patagonia here in the U.S. would be another example. You know, and I'm sure that there's other many American trains and Germany model trains. I'm sure there's uh, many other companies that we could think of. There's none quite at the scale, obviously, of Apple and certainly none that have the visibility. But, you know, if you really want to design like Apple, you have to make it the singular Strategic competitive differentiator for the company. And then you'll design like Apple because you have to. And then the second part of your question was, What was it like to design at Apple? And the answer was, the answer is quite simply, you are constantly asking, How could this be better? You never stop asking, How could this be better? And you will always find a way to make it a little bit better. There was no secret sauce there was no fairy dust there was no special room that we went into we were just a bunch of people in a room with a whiteboard like anybody else and we just you know we 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 were making stuff all the time we didn't talk about you know we didn't we didn't sit around and say well what if we did this and what if we did that you know at apple as a group you would come together and kind of decide this is the course of action that we want to explore and then somebody had to go back to their desk and draw the comps and then we would debate the comps and i think that's probably one of the the easiest and clearest learnings from Apple, is as soon as you're in a conversation with an executive or one of your product peers or somebody, and you're starting to say, well, what about if we did this and what if we did that? And you're not looking at sketches or on a whiteboard, it's just all in words, like you have to stop. You need to be looking at the comps. That's what you can debate. Um, the, the, if people are really interested in this particular topic, I strongly recommend a book called Creative Selection. That's written by a guy named Ken Kishinda, spelling on the last name is uh, K-O-C-I-E-N-D-A, Creative Selection by Ken Kishinda. Ken was an engineer at Apple. Um, He did a bunch of other stuff at Apple, but most notably, he invented the keyboard that shipped on the iPhone. So he invented the keyboard for iOS. He invented the UI. He invented the code. He invented how you type on a glass screen. It was probably the linchpin of the phone success. And in his book, Creative Se- Selection, he talks about that whole experience. And he talks about his, uh, I can't remember how many were, I think there's like eight takeaway lessons, might be more. Um, and his his book is the best and most accurate representation of what it was like to work at Apple during those years. So far more than anything I could share on this podcast, you should go read Ken's book. and <laughs> That'll give you a lot, of, a lot of insight into what that process looked like.
1: Thank you so much, Bob. So what's your advice to individual contributors, to executive levels as designers?
0: Well, the thing you have to, a couple of things you have to do. One is you have to start to realize that executives have a lot of stuff going on, right? And they're balancing a lot of different information, a lot of different variables. Strangely, and sort of, you know, uh, fortunately, Most of the executives you'll ever meet with as a designer, you're probably the favorite meeting of the week. Like I've never met an executive that wasn't thrilled, thrilled to meet with the design team. Um, It is way more fun and way more interesting and way more engaging and way more meaningful and closer to the product than any other meeting they ever have. So if you can, I encourage you to always schedule the executive reviews at the end of Friday because it gives you an opportunity to leave the executive in a great mood as they head into the weekend. And it just means that they're going to come into that meeting with optimism and excitement. And so you're going to have that wind at your back as you come in. So that's sort of one tactic you can you can easily do. The other thing is you have to present it to them as a story. You know, you can't go in and sort of show them all these random screens and kind of explain it like a system as though it was some engineering task. You have to like set it up like it's like it's a story you have to think much more like a filmmaker and what you're walking them through is the scene, you know, and you need to be thinking more in terms of storyboards and acting out what's actually going to happen, you know, and letting them really experience it from the user's point of view. Then you can get good feedback. They this is the first time when they see the, when they see the design is really the first time that they're able to make that leap and understand that the strategy they agreed to six weeks ago in the PRD, this is what that actually means. You know, because we can all sit around with words and talk about strategy and we can all say, oh, yeah, that totally makes sense. But in in our heads, all of us are going to have really different ideas. It's only when you get stuff on paper or when you see the prototype that everybody's like, oh, that's what we're talking about. You know, Um, and so that's when the executive is really going to light up and they're going to give you great feedback. But you've got to be able to lead them through the process and tell them the story and take them on the journey. So that's that's a kind of a second piece. And then the third piece is you have to present design not as subjective opinions. Like you can't go in guns ablaze and trying to convince them of something. You have to present it as our understanding of the problem is X. You know, this, this is the problem the user is facing. We're trying to solve this problem. Here is a design that we belo- believe solves that problem. One, do you agree with the problem as we've stated it? If you do, that's great. And then two, you know, does this design solution solve that problem? And if not, let's talk about how it doesn't. Let's talk about the deficiencies in relation to the problem. Let's not talk about whether or not you like blue or green. Let's talk about what blue means and whether or not that's the thing we're trying to convey. And that will also help to make those meetings much more productive because it won't be just about opinions, right? It'll be grounded in some sort of problem-solving methodology and you'll be in a much more productive kind of evaluation uh, process. An example I use here, as many years ago, I was working on a website and one of the product managers came up to me in the hallway and said, oh, we have to make this link on the homepage blue. And I was like, no, like, what are you talking about? We don't have to make it blue. And they're like, no, no, it has to be blue. I was like, "What, what are you talking about? And so we left the interaction a couple of days later, I looked on the website and this link was blue and it was horrid, you know, and I, and I, I I walked up to him like, what are you doing? Like, what did you, what'd you do? And I said, well, and they said, well, it had to be blue. I'm like, well, why did it have to be blue? Like, well, nobody could see it. I'm like, oh, so it wasn't prominent enough. And and they were like, yeah, it wasn't prominent enough. And I was like, oh, so the problem was it wasn't prominent enough. And the only solution you could think of was to make it, to make it. If you'd come to a designer and you said, this thing needs to be prominent enough, There's like 15 different things we could have looked at, most of which would have been better than making it blue. You know? And so that's when I think that person, I think that's when they started to connect like, oh, like, yeah, I, I, I probably shouldn't just leap to what I think is the right thing to do. Design actually is a problem solving methodology. I should leverage that skill inside my company by defining the problem I need them to solve and then letting those creative minds and that process go come up with a solution. I mean, and again, that's a that's a very different posture for design and it's and one that's much more productive in a technical company, you know, a technology company where you have a bunch of super smart, very logical thinkers, both on the business side and in the engineering and the product side like you can't you don't want to be arguing with those people in terms of opinions right you need to be you need to find some logical model where you're debating the logic um that, that's that's the only way you're going to win those battles uh, sorry we're going to go to the next question just saying one last thing i would say is that when you're in a feedback session don't feel that you have to sell your designs just sit and listen to the feedback. The truth is you've already won the argument by just showing up with the comps because the comps are going to dictate 90% of what's debated. So you've already owned the conversation just because you brought in the thing that everybody's going to talk about. So don't feel like you've got to win the conversation. Just bring the thing in. That's what we created. And then, you know, ask them some clarifying questions. If they if they ask, you know, if, they, if somebody's critiquing a particular element, try to understand the critique and, and dig a little bit deeper. There's no point in getting defensive or feeling like you have to sell this thing. Or you have to defend it. You just need to listen to what they're saying, because again, you've already won ninety percent of the argument because you're the one that draw the, the drew the pictures. Everybody's talking about, so be happy with that. That's some really great, wonderful advice, Bob. <laughs> <laughs>
1: so, wanted to you know what's your opinion on the future of design, and what do you look for, you
0: know, in a designer's portfolio? Well, when we look at the portfolio, you know, obviously there's a certain level of craft and executional ability, right? So there is a certain level of taste. Um, taste is not. Again, it's not just opinion. Taste shows that you've looked at a lot of different software. You understand what does and doesn't work. You have an informed opinion about why something works. You know, you have some idea of, of, of why you think something is better than something else, not merely preference. Taste is more refined than that. And it takes a long time and a lot of exposure to get taste. It's why you have to think about yourself as working in a medium and you have to explore that medium, become a fan of that medium, understand its history, understand its key players, understand its patterns. Like you gotta know that stuff inside and out. So I look for people that can execute with graphic design craft, with interaction design craft, with some level of information architecture and conceptual craft. So that's that's sort of like baseline. You got to have that stuff. That comes to, you know, in in mechanical terms, that comes down to photography and, I'm sorry, typography and layout. Like when I hit your website, your portfolio, how does it look? like does it look competent so that's sort of that's sort of one big piece of the portfolio after that you know we we start to look for uh what level of the of the software do you like to work at so when i first look at your comp i might ask you about conceptually what are you trying to achieve here so that's me trying to understand if you're at a point in your career where you're working on the conceptual stuff you know so i'm asking you about uh the object model you know what are the what are the nouns in your system what are the operations how is the user supposed to know what they can and can't select like what what is this thing conceptually some people will engage in that those types of questions some people won't then we move on to interaction questions you know why did you choose two radio buttons instead of a menu why would you go with the checkbox instead of a toggle you know what happens uh, why are those buttons disabled and how do i know how to get them enabled how are you reporting errors like all that sort of interaction stuff some people respond to those questions and some people don't <laughs> and then we start looking at visual design stuff why did you do that layout How does it tie to uh, to eye eye flow and the way people process the page visually? Why did you choose that type? What does that color mean? Um, Why did you choose those types of drop shadows? Occasionally, I've seen people come in and like the drop shadows are pointing different directions. So you'll start asking, what's the light source for the drop shadows? And sometimes they've thought about it and sometimes they haven't. Um, So we go through all that. Um, And again, that's just trying to understand from a craft perspective where their strengths are and how they think about the problem. So there's sort of all that stuff on the portfolio side. And then in, in terms of the presentation itself, it's also story. Storytelling. Do you, you know, can you present a project with sort of a beginning and a middle of an end? You know, is there a thread that runs that story? Have you brought us along and told us about the project? Um, and then shown, you know, shown the ups and downs, like projects, that, you know, that there's a lot of failed ideas in the middle. Have you shown us all that? Have you actually shown the work or have you spent all this time talking about the process and sort of dragging us through the muck of all your you know, personas and all your research? Like that's not, like just showing us that you know how to do that sort of stuff. Like, that's not so interesting. I want to get to the work. And then finally, like, how are you managing the time and how are you managing the room? Sort of, do you have basic presentation skills? Um, If you come in and you have an hour to present and you tell me at the beginning, you have three projects and 45 minutes in, we're still on first project. I'm starting to think, well, you don't really know how to manage the time. You know, how do you respond to the questions in the room? Can you control the room? All that sort of stuff. And it's not that somebody at the early part of their career has to be able to do all that stuff. But I think to be a successful senior designer, you know, you have to be able to to tell the story, control the presentation. You know, you have to be able to think about how to present the work. And then you have to have like just really super strong command to craft. So it's a it's a lot of that stuff. It's all that stuff.
1: <laughs> so the other part of the question
0: was what's your
1: opinion on the future of design?
0: Ah, uh, yeah. Well, design's a big giant word. So if we're talking about the future of software design, that one's really interesting. I I I'm starting to think that we're gonna be at a point in the next, let's say 10 years where somebody's going to figure out an AI engine that's going to be able to generate screens for us. And I think some of this stuff is already happening where you can basically tell an AI engine, oh, I need a I need a photo sharing UI, uh, and it will go and, and assemble that kind of screen-based UI for you. So I think design's going to move a lot more upstream and, and, uh, and probably away from drawing screens so much. And, and more to what is this thing supposed to do, where are, the, where are the innovative ways to twist the rules to come up with something that uh, surprises the user. So I, I think probably the bigger measure design in the next 10 years is going to be design's ability to come up with novel approaches. And I honestly, I have no idea what that means for us as individual designers. It's as unknown to me as it anybody else. I have a hard time believing we're going to be sitting using our same tools. As much as I love them now, as much as I love Figma and Pitch and Moreau and Slack and Asana and all that stuff, it's just, I got to think 10 years from now, the world looks really, really different. Um, But I don't know what it's going to be. It's going to be amazing getting there, though.
1: That's great, Bob. Thank you so much for sharing all these insights with us. So could you please share with us how does your day look
0: like or any interesting stories? Well, interesting stories. There's a lot of interesting stories. What my day looks like, um, you know, well, look, I'm a, I'm a design executive, right? So my job's fairly different from what most designers do. I really think of myself at this point as designing the machine that designs the designs. So uh, my week is actually structured where each day has a particular theme. So day one, for example, happens to be alignment with my direct uh, design team. And so we have a a Monday morning team kickoff for the week where we have designers both from Bangalore, from the East Coast of the United States, from the West Coast of the United States. We all come together, there's about 15 of us. And we talk about what's on deck for the week, what people did with the weekend, et cetera. Then I meet with my direct leadership team, um then it's a lot of checking in with my cross-functional partners to make sure that we're kind of all aligned to what we're trying to accomplish in the week tuesday is creative reviews so we start tuesday morning at 8 a.m with what i call super tuesday and we have uh, three hours of design reviews with we try to look at basically all the work that's in the studio at that point and the whole team goes through it and we're just looking at whatever progress has been made since the previous week in the evening the afternoon we'll have a working session where i'm typically involved kind of as a designer um, on some new project where we're trying to figure out the conceptual model, the structural model, this really low-level kind of UI framework. Uh, there's usually one project at a time where we're working on that. So I'm part of those kinds of sessions in the afternoon. There's other sorts of one-on-ones and executive meetings scattered throughout the day. Wednesday, we have no meeting uh, no meeting Wednesday, which is awesome. So I get a little bit chance to catch up and think and you know, reflect on the team and what we're doing, dig into a Figma, leave a bunch of comments in Figma, map out some stuff in Asana, etc., Thursday, we're back with more design reviews, mostly with our cross-functional partners. Friday, we have executive alignment. So I meet with my peers that are running the executive leadership of the company. And then we often check in with our founder and share some design work with him. Um, and then uh, then everybody goes home on Friday and they rest up on Saturday and Sunday because we got to come back on Monday and do it again. Um, and I try to run the studio. I probably think less in terms of what my typical day is like. And I try to think more in terms of what the week is like. And uh, it's it's kind of what I described. Like There's definitely a period of alignment then there's a series of creative reviews there's a series of creative uh, workshops and, and meetings where we're inventing stuff um, and then there's executive alignment and approvals with other parts of the company and that unfolds over the week and we just repeat that week after week after week after week um, I learned that in my time at Apple but you know also before and, and to me it's you know it's just the cadence of creativity. You don't want it to be a special opportunity that you go get to present to the CEO of the company. You want to be presenting to the CEO or the founder, the executives. You want to be presenting to them every week because you want to be bringing them along in the process. You don't want to treat them as approvers. You want to treat them as collaborators. You want to make them feel like they're part of it. You want to give them an opportunity to influence the work so that they own it as well. You never ever want to surprise them, and you never really want to impress them. You want to just be showing up all the time, and it's a little bit like. Uh, you know, it's a little bit more like playing something like baseball or maybe cricket where you're playing a game all the time, you know, and it's just a matter of getting those rhythms and you're going to, you know, you're going to win some, you're going to lose some, but no matter what happens today, you're coming back tomorrow to give it another shot. You want to do that. You don't want to be at like the Olympics and the hundred meter dash where you got like one shot at it. And if you have a bad race, that's it. You do not want to do that. You know, design is just, it's turning the crank. You got to do it all the time. Um, so that it doesn't, so, so you don't get intimidated by it. So you don't have time to procrastinate. So you don't get stressed. And if you read the bio, biography of any painter, any, uh, uh, musician, any writer, any novelist, like they work all the time, like every day, it's just a couple hours every day, every day, they just keep going. Right. And that's how you accumulate. That's how you get better. That's how you crank through stuff. And you never get, that's, that's a way to kind of manage the creative anxiety. And again, to kind of keep, keep procrastination at bay. You got to wake up tomorrow and keep going. So never let yourself get too tired and never get too, you know, never get too excited about the victories or too disappointed about the losses. You just keep going, hold steady, just keep accumulating.
1: (laughs) That's some really great
0: advice, Bob.
1: So we'll conclude this show by you recommending three favorite books of yours and also people who inspired you the most in the space.
0: Uh, so the books I'd recommend, I already mentioned one, Creative Selection by Ken Keshenda. Another one I'd recommend is uh, Creativity Inc. by Ed Catmull. Uh, 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 Ed was the founding CEO of Pixar Animation Studios. Creativity Inc. is about uh, both the founding of Pixar, but, but also their creative process. I used to joke that it's the best book I ever read about Apple, even though it's about Pixar, because Apple and Pixar operated in pretty much the same way, even though they produced very different things. The, ma- the machinery of creativity in those two companies is very similar. So Creativity, Inc. by Ed Catmull would be my second recommendation. And then my third recommendation would be The Elements of Typographic Style by Robert Bringhurst, which is a fantastic book about typography. It will make you cry it will make you fall in love with typography. And for for months afterwards, you'll, you'll get weepy when you look at the ampersand from Garamond or something like that. It will just give you a completely different appreciation for the power of typography. The author, Robert Bringhurst, used to be the Poet Laureate of Canada, and it shows in the book. So the writing in the book is phenomenal. Um, so Elements of Typographic Style by Robert Bringhurst. Uh, people that have inspired me... Um, you know I, I, like people whose work has has blown me away so i'll focus on work that has inspired me because i don't necessarily know these people who are the other uh susan care the stuff that she did with the mac back in the day you know i i am convinced that the that technology in general would not have the same human touch that it has today if it wasn't for susan care creating that happy mac back in the day like that's a really big leap in 1983 For somebody like Susan Kerr, who was an art student, one of the few women on the team dealing with Steve Jobs, surrounded by nerdy engineers, had the idea that you could design raster-based icons in the same way you could create needlepoint. You take that whole thing put together and she comes up with the Happy Mac. And I think the Happy Mac icon sets a tone for computing that we're all benefiting to this day because it made it more human. And so... I mean, I know Susan personally and adore her, but I also just think that that imaginative leap, you know, that touch of love was so powerful and so inspiring. And we, uh, you know, all of us, anybody who uses a technology product today benefits from that original insight. So I'd say her. (laughs) And then the second one I'd say is Boz Ordling. So Boz is not as well-known name. Boz, um, was the original designer for the Aqua interface, which was the original kind of lickable UI that Apple did back with the release of Mac OS X. Boz also came up with most of the visual language for the original iPhone and was uh, probably the key visual designer inside Apple through uh, you know kind of the, the marquee period of 19 uh, yeah so 1996 to probably about 2014 I think is when he left 16 something like that. Um, yeah, you, could, you can find articles about Boz. He hasn't written, He's he doesn't have much of a social media presence. Um, so it's a little bit tricky to find, but uh, Boz, B A S, and then Ordling, O R D L I N G. Am-a- amazing work, seminal figure. Um, and then the third one, who would I go for? Uh, probably Alan Kay would be a, another good one. So Alan Kay was at the Xerox Palo Alto Research Center, um, and he had he's just did some phenomenal work on uh, graphical user interfaces and how how software could work the way we think about it It really invented as part of a team but you know largely led um the the computer that that xerox had produced that predated the mac so really what we take for granted with as windowed desktop computing today which you know then gives rise to everything else that happens afterwards a lot of those ideas um come from alan and the work he did so I, i could go on about other seminal figures The point I might leave is that people should all have their own catalog of these folks. You know, it would it would in the same way that I'm sure every listener on this call has some uh, painter, some musicians, maybe dancers, maybe actors. They have some collection of people that inspire them. And I bet that if we could talk to the designers that are listening, all of them could probably name 20 actors and none of them could name 10 designers, even though they work in design. That's kind of a problem. (laughs) You know. You need to start figuring out who these people were and what they invented and what their contributions were and why it mattered. Again, because we work in an amazing medium and we should honor that medium and the people that helped make it what it is today. Thank you so much, Bob, for sharing all these wonderful insights with us. We are looking
1: forward to host you again in our upcoming show. So thanks for your awesome. time.
0: Yeah, hey, thank you, Tage. Thanks for having me. I hope it was, uh, hope it's useful. I hope everybody out there enjoys listening to it.